Hey, I'm Mike Bruce, the founder and CEO of Visible. As you scale your company, having the right guides at your side can make all of the difference. Each episode, we'll talk to fellow founders, investors, and experts. We'll dive into their zone of genius, as well as hear about their past mistakes to give you a better chance of success. This podcast is for founders by founders. This is the Founders Forward. All right, everyone. Today, I am joined by Gail Wilkinson. She is currently the founder and managing partner of Vitalized Venture Group. Totally awesome group of individuals. Uh, disclaimer, they're customers of ours. That's not the reason why we're having <laughs> Gail on, though. Gail and is just awesome. We're diving a lot of her insights. Um, before Vitalize, she was the founder and managing director of Irish Angels. Uh, and Gail, I think I've read, you've led investments in over 70 companies in over $50 million in capital deployed. Uh, that might even be an outdated set. I'm sure it is at this point. But um, what I loved is that you said you led investments. I think it's so hard to like find great lead investors or people that will actually have conviction and lead versus just follow on. So anyways, that's my welcome slash compliment. Uh, welcome to the, the show, Gail. Thanks, Mike. And for everybody out there, we are happy cu customers of Visible. So highly recommend And he's not paying me for this show or to say that. Love it. What a great note to start the, the, the episode on. Um, okay, so uh, we, we talked about the number of investments you just led and, and capital deployed. How did, what was your, your journey to, become, to becoming an, an early stage investor? What did that look like? Total accident. So I had started two companies before um, I started Irish Angels. Both of those failed. And you know I was definitely a founder and operator, a builder. And then I had the opportunity to start Irish Angels uh, when I was approached by some of our early board members. And I thought to myself, well, I never thought about venture, but it's starting a firm to help others start firms. So I'm totally in. Um, that was back in 2012. And um, over the last nine years that I ran Irish Angels, grew that into one of the largest and most active firms in the country. That's awesome. What, what's been the biggest thing that's changed over the last I'm putting you on the spot because I don't think this is the, the questions we have sent ahead of time, but like what's changed over the last nine years from 2012 today, just in terms of how uh, investments are being done and, and what you've seen change in the market? There's so much more capital at this point, at, at, you know, at, at all stages, but where I play in the early stages, I mean, I, I taught a course back in 2013 and I think at that point there were 30 to 50 seed stage funds and today there's probably thousands yeah. Um, and now you've got crowdfunding, you've got rolling funds, roll-up vehicles, even more new nano funds, operator angels who are leading syndicates. I mean, there's so much capital at the early stage that this is a great thing for founders, but for, um, for us on the investment side, we have to really focus on something. So you don't see as many generalists as you do before. Um, and you also have to move really fast and make sure that you're um, actually helping the founders. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. For, for Irish Angels, uh, for those listening, it was uh, an angel group that wasn't officially affiliated with Notre Dame, but I believe a lot of Notre Dame alumni were LPs of the fund. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And now you're all in uh, and and you're the start, you started that now you're starting Vitalize. Uh, what does Vitalize look like? Because I'm assuming it doesn't have the same affiliation. So what was the impetus to starting Vitalize and, and what are you guys all about now? Yeah, so Vitalize is a seed and pre-seed stage firm. We invest in future of work and future of learning. Today, we're focused on the U.S. Um, we're looking for really early founders with big visions in this space and a clear path to execute on that vision. And 
we, we just talked about this before recording. We were also talking about uh, the angel group that you guys are starting. And I think it's a pretty innovative, innovative approach because it's not only accredited investors, but unaccredited investors. How did that come to be? Give us a little more on, on why this angel group exists and, and let's dive in there. So once again, I'm a builder, so I pay attention to the trends going on in, in the industry and what's happening right now, in addition to needing to focus and needing to move fast. One thing is that founders are asking for diversity and cap tables. And the second thing that's happening, which is interesting, is that founders, um, they're interested in community. And so many people want to help founders. They want to invest in these companies. That community is a trend that we are very bullish on. And it's it's going to become important for a lot of early stage funds moving forward. So we wanted to be an early mover on these trends. And we decided that um, we were going to create an angel platform that does very early future of work and learning deals. So let's think pre-seed, these are rounds of about one to $2 million. And um, the, there are great founders, they're a little too early for our fund, but our community of you know, many angels can write very small checks to do a pre-seed deal with them. And then if the fund decides to, the fund is focused on seed stage deals. And so the fund will have uh, pro rata rights to invest at the next round if they prefer to do so. What, what is the, the, I think the unaccredited piece is pretty interesting. Why? Like why, why have unaccredited folks uh, that, are, that are part of the group? Well, what, one of the things that's personally important to me is to increase access to this asset class. And um, the SEC has rules regarding what's called accreditation that will determine if you can or cannot invest in this in this asset class, which is angel investing. And you know, my just to be completely honest, I only became accredited in the last year or so. And I had to get married to do that. And that's absolute <laughs> BS because um, you know, so many of us have a little bit of cash sitting there that we should be able to invest. Um, and you know, crowdfunding platforms are, are fantastic because they do provide access to it. However, um, the, the traditional angel group model is great because there is um, a process through which deals come in, a team will vet a bunch of deals, the entire group can help with due diligence. And effectively what happens is that the people who are involved in those communities end up having access to better deals. So we wanted to combine the benefits of crowdfunding, which allows everybody to have access um, and then also an angel group, which provides the diligence and the vetting and the education to allow people to make better decisions. And the cool thing that we have been able to do is that we have, um, of our first 175 people who've joined our group, over 50% are underrepresented check writers. These are women and people of color um, who historically have not been joining the accredited investing angel groups at this high of a uh, at this level. Um, so we've reduced the barrier, which is awesome. Oh man, kudos to you, right? Because like you had to do all the legwork to set up the infrastructure uh, to do that, right? There's probably a reason why it hasn't been done. And so that's uh, that's pretty special. What percentage do you think are founders of, of the 170 or so um, that have signed up so far? We definitely have a lot of founders. They, um, they, they both want to invest and they also want to just learn what is it like on the investor side of the table. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I would guess right now it's between 15 and 20% are founders and we definitely yeah. welcome founders to join. Yeah, I think that's such an interesting trend that's happening where uh, you are getting founders who want founders on their cap table uh, and seeing yeah. how that is just unfolding, right? Because it's like, hey, I want someone that's 
uh, done this before or someone I can call and, and it's running the same problem or same opportunity. And uh, I think I think that's uh, welcomed and in, in a, a pretty interesting trend. I thought the other thing I thought was really interesting is um, the way you mentioned how, how your LPs have to help, which is customer introductions. Uh, I think that's like so smart. If you talk about, uh, you know, how can a VC quote unquote be truly like value add or a group? Uh, I think, you know, what we see time and time and time again from founders on visible writing investor updates is like intros to customers. Like that's all everyone, anyone cares about, right? Is like, typically it's like intros to customers or, or intros to future investors. And like, uh, I'm glad that you guys are tackling the customer piece. I think that's just a, a unique uh, differentiator uh, compared to uh, what else is out there. We, we wanted to keep the pricing low. So there's no deal fee and there's no carry on, on our deals. Um, there is a small quarterly membership fee and that it's $149 per quarter right now. It covers the salary of the community manager, which we're about to hire. Um, so it's super low cost, but in addition to that low price point, we're asking all of our investors to make one connection a month. And we're putting some tech in place that's going to make that really, really easy. Um, and this is one of the reasons why founders want to work with us. They love the diversity of the group, and they also love the fact that we're willing to roll up our sleeves and intro them to customers. Ooh, that's cool. So, so no, um, uh, yeah, I love that. Um, it sounds like a, a modern, proper like angel group, not one where uh, you have to come in like once a quarter and then wait a quarter to hear. Um, and like even some like pay to pitch, it's uh, pretty refreshing to hear how that's a, a little bit different for you guys. Yeah, our, our goal is to get to scale. So we were hoping to get to a thousand plus people quickly. And we need that level of scale because we're allowing our angels to invest as little as a thousand dollars. And the other problem that we're tackling is that a lot of pre-seed founders have a number of angels who've committed, but they don't have a lead investor. And once we have enough people in our group and we can write checks of 250 to 350,000, we can actually lead those deals and help those founders pull together the rest of their capital. So we see this as a huge game changer um, with a big, big problem in the industry right now. Yeah, oh, I love it. Um, let's jump into fundraising. So uh, I wanna spend some time um, first talking about the seed stage fundraising process. Uh, this is kind of where you guys have lived for, or you've lived personally for a long time. Um, so then you have a lot of a good insight scale here, but what, um, and, and let's talk about like beginning part of the process um, in terms of like my list building. How should a founder go about uh, thinking and building a list of potential investors? This is probably one of the more important things in, in the entire process of fundraising is identifying who the potential targets are. I suggest to a founder to always have a running list that they're tracking angel and pre-seed investors, seed stage investors in series A, even from the beginning. Taking note of people that you are either referred to, you hear about, you see them on social media channels. Um, these are investors who you resonate with in terms of their focus, whether that's industry or geography um, or something like DEI, for example. And, and that you believe that they could be a fit. So you want to just write those all down on your list um, so that you have a nice list prepared when you're ready to go raise. And if you don't have a list and you're raising now, don't worry. Spend a weekend. Um, and there are lots of resources out there where you can find investors. Um, you know, I know I have a couple threads on this and several other folks on Twitter do as well, where you can just literally find hundreds of VCs and angels that um, could be a fit. And it takes some time to go through them, but you want to 
write down who are your top, you know, 50 to 75 that you want to target? Yeah. Uh, this is, this is a selfish plug, but, uh, we'll make sure to link to that, but also check out, um, completely free tool we have called connect where, uh, founders can go through and filter and sort by all kinds of things, check sizes, location, uh, sector, uh, if an investor will lead, uh, we're constantly, uh, we have someone on our team we're constantly just pulling all of those kind of free, uh, lists that people build and we dedupe it all in Airtable and it's got like a really nice front end. Um, and it also integrates with our, our fundraising database. So I highly encourage anyone, uh, to go check that out. Cause it's a, it's a completely free resource. You don't even have to use visible to get value from it. Um, cause I think, you know, our, our is like, how can we automate like 80% at least of like finding the who you're still going to have to go find and, and do some of your, your work yourselves. But, uh, we're, we're trying to get a little bit more insight into the, what kind of lookalike investors should, should founders go and, and, and find. So, um, make sure to check That's that awesome. out. Yeah. One of the other things I want to get your, your, your thought on or, or opinion is we always ask this question is, uh, how many investors should I expect to talk to, uh, when I'm raising like a seed round, is it 10, is it 50, is it a hundred? I'm sure it varies, but is there kind of a, a median there that you've seen play out when you're helping founders in terms of how many investors need to be in my list that I need to at least have some sort of touch point with? You will likely need to have 25 to 50 conversations, sometimes fewer than that, sometimes more than that, but that's a good average range. Um, for example, we're leading around right now for a founder raising a seed round. Um, and I think we've already introduced him to 20 investors. And then he'd already obviously talked to a lot of other investors as well. So it, it is quite the process. Um, but the good news is that even if it's not a fit with some of the ones you talk to, you can get more introductions from them or maybe a fit for their next round. And that's where you go back to that spreadsheet that you're keeping for series A, pop their name in it and make some notes so that you can go back to them and you already have a warm intro. Yeah. How, how many um, uh, are kind of pulling on that a little bit is maybe I'm an under-networked founder, underrepresented. Uh, cold email might be my only way or applying might be my only way to get uh, in front of some of these different investors. Uh, what are some best practices you've seen uh, as it relates to cold cold emailing? Like, what do you like to get as an investor? Uh, I'm sure you've done this yourself as well quite a bit. Uh, what are best practices that you can give tips to, to other founders? You follow me on Twitter. I do talk about this a lot because I think yeah. this is one of the, one of the, um, the easiest ways to get lived is if you make sure you write really good cold emails and believe me, I've, I've done this too. When I'm, when I'm in the seat of fundraising, um, and it really, really makes a difference to test the emails. And from my experience, the shorter the email, the better. And I like to see this format, um, in bullets, your value proposition next is information about what you're raising. So you're raising X amount of money on a safe or a price round. If you know your valuation, you can include it. Um, you want to include your, a bullet about your traction. How much revenue do you have? What's your month over month growth? Do you have any key partners, any, um, anything that shows that you have traction. And then finally, you're going to share a link to your deck. And then at the very end, it's, it's asking for, Hey, if this could be a fit, could we have a 15 to 30 minute meeting? And so it should take an investor literally 10 seconds to scan through that. And what they're picking up is, is the name of your company, the value proposition, um, what kind of traction you have. And then if they want to learn more after they see that, they click on your deck. Um, if that all fits their thesis and it seems like it could be a fit, 
then they'll, they'll say, yeah, let's schedule something. And I absolutely will answer to cold emails. What I will not do is read paragraphs of text. I will just delete it because like literally I just don't have time, unfortunately. And this is where founders can give themselves a huge leg up by being really succinct and hard hitting in those points to make sure um, that they give themselves the best chance of getting a response. So spot on. We're going to embed, I think it was a couple of weeks ago you had the tweet. So we're going to embed that tweet because I think it outlines everything you said there. Uh, we've seen similar things in our research, like 150 to 200 words is going to get you the best and optimal conversion and no one's going to read anything long-winded. Like your goal is just to like drip just the amount of sizzle to get someone interested and, and then get the meeting. It's not to lay out the entire business for someone in a cold email. So uh, we'll make sure to include that because I think that's uh, such an easy way to get in front of investors and probably, I, I know it's definitely utilized, but I think people probably use it the wrong way. So, um, and I forgot, for, for I forgot one, one thing that yeah. can be helpful is, um, the, the very first sentence could connect why you're, you're the person that you're emailing is a potential good fit for you. So it shows that mm -hmm. you follow them on Twitter or you liked a blog post that they did, or you have looked at their portfolio. I mean, anything that shows that this is an individualized email is helpful. Yeah, we had Christian um, Anderson from High Off on uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it's just like the slightest amount of authentic flattery even um, <laughs> goes a long way. Because it means you do yeah. a little research, you said something nice and, and, and you know, got to come off genuine with it. But uh, if, you, if you do a little bit of research, it, it definitely goes a long way. Absolutely. Um, uh, OK, let's talk about time. So uh, again, you have a, a great, another uh, great piece of content here on how much time uh, founders should give themselves. I think this is one thing we're really trying to help educate founders, especially first time is the amount of time and process it actually is to uh, handle a fundraise. So what have you seen? You actually have like hard data here. I don't know if you, you might recall this off the top of your head, you might not, but um, there's some pretty interesting data you have around how long fundraising actually takes. All right, I'm going to give you an answer and then Mike will let me know if I am <laughs> right. saying the same thing that I did because I do not remember the suite. Okay. Yeah. Um, and here's the most important thing for founders to, to know is that you want to do what's called pre-marketing. And this is really, really important because as soon as you go out and say I'm raising, you need to close it within six months. And if you don't, you're out market too long and you're, you're likely just not going to make it. So what pre-marketing means is that you can start having conversations with friendly investors. Hopefully you have um, connections to a few and start to get introductions to a few more, um, or you can cold email some, regardless of how you get in front of them, you want to have a number of conversations and start to say, Hey, I'm going to go out and raise my, my round in about three months. So give yourself three months to, um, to pre-market. And hopefully by the time that you're done pre-marketing, you have on your, your spreadsheet, you've made some notes of folks that are in interested once you start raising and those are going to be your first conversations so it's a way to give yourself a leg up when you start um, and then yeah you really got to try and get through it in three three months um, is great and six months is really max for what how long you should be in market that's uh, pretty much what you laid out here and what i've seen uh, <laughs> as an emerging trend which is like three to six months kind of four is the median uh, i think it's interesting you this is um some of your own data. This is a year old. It's crazy how much, not even, it's not even a year old and how much this is from November of last year. Uh, it's a medium post and how much the market's even changed in terms of speed. Uh, oh but gosh, it says yeah. here, um, you, you're, you, you guys commit within three weeks of meeting right. a founder and the network angel commits within six. But like in terms of the total fundraise, uh, it mentions like 
you know, give yourself four months. Um, so I think that's that's spot on. It's crazy though, like it's probably very different. I would have to imagine today versus uh, a year ago. Oh yeah, I mean, some founders raise in a matter of weeks, um, and then others it, it can take the the three, four, six months. So yeah, just you know, I'm somebody that you know coming to this when I raise it takes me like I have to go and pound pavement. Um, yeah. And that's that's okay because we can still get it done, but we have to give ourselves enough time. Yeah, uh, let's talk about the deck for a second. Um, people love talking about decks and, and what should and should not be in them. Um, what's your take? Like, one, do you even need a deck? Uh, and then two, what are like one or two absolutely must-have slides for that you want to see from a founder? You should either have a deck or. A notion page, let's say, like some some easy to review material that outlines the following. You know, you have obviously your your title logo, um, and then your value proposition. So, what do you do, and what problem are you solving, and how big is that problem? So that's your market size, and make sure your market size is in dollars, um, and that you calculate that through a bottoms up methodology, um, and you kind of cite how you're you're making those assumptions. Then you want to talk about the competition and how you're differentiated. You want to talk about any traction that you have. Um, there's typically a section on projected financials for seed stage and later pre-seed. That's probably not important. Um, definitely a slide on team or a section on team to understand why is their founder market fit here? Who's on the team? What kind of background do they have? And why are they passionate about solving this problem? Um, and then I think you should always include your ask. So what are you raising? If you know the valuation or a range you're looking for, you can include it. Some VCs are, do not like that um, guidance that I give, but if you, if you know it, why not share it? Um, and then you, you can list committed investors if you have permission to do so. Once again, those are things that show traction. And when you send that one pager or deck out, you want the investor, they're gonna skim through it in literally 30 seconds. And so you're hoping that they pull the key things out. You've got a great team. You have a really succinct value proposition in a really big and growing market. Um, you're better than the competition because you have an interesting angle, and you know, you know exactly what you're raising. Let's let's jump into the the valuation piece. I think that's really interesting because whenever we're doing workshops or webinars or, or talking to founders, I think there's always the question of valuation. Um, like, what is my valuation? Even like, can you lay out the pros and cons? Um, cause you said like some VCs don't agree with you. Like what, what are the two different schools of thought there in terms of putting or not putting your valuation in your deck? Well, the, the reason you wouldn't is because you want the market to quote price it. And if you throw a number out, you are anchoring on, on the price point that you throw out, um, which, you know, negotiating theory would suggest that that is correct. However, um, we also know that typically in any early stage round, the founder is going to sell somewhere between 20 and 25% of their business. So you can easily back into what the valuation should be. Right now, valuations are a little nutty. And so maybe it's not quite uh, 20 to 25%, maybe it's more like 15 to 20%. But um, I always like to ask this question of founders because if they tell me, look, I'm raising a million dollars and it's going to be a 10 million post. I know they're only selling 10% of the business and that's low. So what does that mean? They don't have as much capital as the average in order to hit their milestones and get to the next round. So they better have a real reason that they can do what they need to do off of just a million dollars instead of raising two. If they don't get there, then they're in no person's land. And then I'm 
a, uh, not a very smart investor for having given them money. Um, so the only time it really makes sense for a founder to give up, you know, very small percentage of equity is if they're a former founder, you know, what? they don't even really need to take your money, but they want to take your money because they like you. Um, or there's something else that they have, which is just killer and they're, and they're amazing. And there's not as much risk as normal. And that just doesn't really happen that often. So at the end of the day, you know, this kind of 20% being sold is a really great rule of thumb for founders to consider. Is that for C, like, yeah, what are, what are some benchmarks for C, call it series A, B, like, and, and what are red flags, you know, you might see as a seed investor um, that would keep you from investing, maybe if a founder has given up too much equity, you like, yeah, walk through, walk through some benchmarks there. So pre-seed and seed, are, I think, are both about 20% that a founder is selling on average. Um, later it's going to be, it starts to come down in terms of percentage. Yeah. And that makes sense because you have a lot more traction. Um, and then the capital that you're coming in is not quite as important and critical as it is at that very early stage. So it should start to come down a little bit in terms of percentage sold in later rounds. Um, in terms of watchouts, the number one problem that I see with early stage founders is that they have given up equity to a former founder, an advisor, or um, an employee with no longer adding value. And now they have what I call dead equity on their cap table. If it's higher than 5% at the time that we invest, um, I really need to understand if it's worth the risk because um, once again, the, the, the founder's got to raise a whole bunch of different rounds and sell equity and get diluted at every stage. So when you start at the very early stage with a bunch of dead equity on the books, it's really, really, really hard to make it. And I've worked with a number of founders to try and recapitalize the company by going back to those folks who own that equity and see if we can't clean things up. Um, so just remember if you're at a stage where you're thinking about giving um, equity to other folks who are working with you now, just make sure to have agreements in place, make sure that you have standard four-year vesting with the one-year cliff so that you can claw that back if things don't work out. Yeah, um, so smart. Uh, I want to jump into... Um, financials, modeling, market sizing. Um, Cause I think in terms of early stage investors, I think you skew towards the like, those are things you should have versus like the other school of thought, which is like it's team, 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 big market opportunity. I don't care about your, your projections. I think it's always healthy to hear both sides of the argument and you as a founder make a decision what's best for you. Um, but let's, let's jump into maybe first, like the idea of like a data room. Again, we'll link to the, um, Gail's post, so you can see what, what should be included, but things like financials, uh, your forecast for the upcoming years, like what are things you, you think should be in the data room? Uh, and, and what are you really testing for there, right? Because it's probably not like, I expect you to hit these numbers, but what are you using that for your own analysis? Yeah, once again, a lot of VCs don't like me for my opinion here, but um, I am an early stage investor that believes in financials. And I believe in financials for one reason. I want to see how a founder is projecting the growth of their business and the assumptions and drivers that they're using in order to get to that um, amount of projected revenue. So like, I, I know that they're not perfect. In fact, they should be super simple. I hate to see really complex models, but a founder should spend a number of hours and think through what are my inputs here and what can my outputs be? If that exercise is not done, um, let's say at seed stage, I will oftentimes pass. And what I've learned over time now that I've invested in, you know, 80 to 90 founders is that the best founders just really understand their business. 
and they understand what's important in their business. And the financials, you know, they don't have to be a financial expert, but they should be able to throw together a quick model. Um, and so I, I really look at that to see how they think. What do they know? Where do they gather data? Um, I'll ask questions about it. Once again, it doesn't have to be perfect, but I do want to understand that they, they can um, put that together and they're thinking about the future in a way where they, they can execute on it today. What about like red flags? Like, is there anything in a model that you'd be like, like, is it getting a billion dollars in revenue in, in five years? <laughs> is it like, are there other other red flags that you'll see and will you ding founders for, for seeing that in a financial model? Yeah, sometimes I see really, really high revenues. Um, if the assumptions make sense and it's a really big market, I probably won't ding them. If, if it's if it's evident that there was really no thought put into it and it's really high and they don't understand that, hey, you just said you're gonna get 10% of your market within four years, like that just doesn't happen, even to the best companies. So um, that's an example of the, the founder hasn't really thought through what they're doing. Um, and I have to ask myself if they've missed the boat this much on how they're thinking about the future in terms of their projections, do they really understand their customer? Do they really understand how to sell? Um, and so it, it's, it's an example of, I'm just looking for all the pieces to kind of tie together. And when I do see a, a, a weird situation or an outlier, like I, I will look for other ones. If, if it's a pattern, then I will definitely pass. Yeah. Well, you, being a VC is all about being contrarian. It sounds like you're contrarian when it comes to this. So like, you're probably doing something right is what this means. Um, well, when, when you're, when you're thinking about it. Um, I, I mean, I think it's important just to, to be able to speak competently about the business and how you're going to grow. And, and so I think um, it, it's so crucial. But let's talk about one thing I think everyone agrees on, which is uh, like market sizing and operating in big markets. I think like every kind of venture investor is looking for companies that can scale in massive markets. Um, and, he, and you mentioned bottoms up. So what, what are your best practices for helping a model, uh, helping a founder model a market, total adjustable market in the, in the early days? Yeah, I mean, the simple formula is just how many customers is are in your market. So if you're a, a direct-to-consumer business, what, consume, what, what, what amount of individual people are realistically in your target? And you have to adjust that downward. It's not just every person in the world. You've obviously got a specific age set and a specific geo and then other attributes, which will shrink that number of end customers down. On the business to business side, it's the same thing. It's how many companies are in your target. If you're going after SMBs, it's not all SMBs, it's, it's a certain size employees. So you want to use data sources to whittle that big number down to like your true addressable number of customers. And then you simply multiply that by your pricing per year. And that gives you your market size in dollars. There we go. We also have a template for this. So I'll make sure to link to that. Um, we're gonna we're gonna wrap with questions where we ask all guests, trying to pull some some hard data here, um, and just things we can share with our community. We touched on this one already, but um, what catches your eye in a cold email from a founder outside of it being succinct? Um, I'll let you answer that question. I know you already talked about this one, but we'll, we'll jump back to that. This question. I, um, I gravitate towards founders who are really excited about what they're doing, and you, you know you can tell in an email when somebody has a lot of passion for what they do. So let that show through. Um, definitely the authentic message um, is, is something that we don't necessarily spend enough time talking about in venture, but 
the passion that a founder has for their space and their business, it's, it's an important part of early stage investing. I'm betting on that founder to persist through years and years of difficulty. Um, there are ups and downs. So that's, that is a piece that can stand out to me in the cold email. What's the number one thing a founder can do to speed up their fundraising process, take it from six months to four or four to three? Like what, what can I do to help speed up my, my, my process? Hire a great part-time um, individual who can help you do research or an intern. I mean, we have, we actually are going to drop tomorrow. So the date was Wednesday, the 22nd, we'll be sharing a database that we have of 700 people who've signed up to do gig work for startups in BC. Um, find one of those people and, you know, pay him for 10 hours of work a week for four weeks and have them just make you a really, really big list. And then go through the list and now you've, you've got to start and you can spend your time reading about the people that they've found for you. Um, and th then you've just saved yourself some time. So you want to spend time like doing the, the connecting the dots with your story and what the investor does versus the manual task of just compiling the list. That's incredible. I, I, I feel you, you guys do such a good job of, of creating tactical things for founders to take away outside of just like investing in the company. So um, uh, I may have done this myself a few, a few times. Yeah, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, if a founder thinks you're a fit to revitalize, any, any tips like for getting in touch, increasing your chances of a meeting? Uh, is there an application process? Like how should I best approach Vitalize? Yes. Yeah, so once again, we're looking for pre-seed and seed stage founders who are um, future of work and future of learning. Right now we're just doing US-based C-Corps. So unfortunately, if you're incorporated somewhere else in the world, it wouldn't be a fit. And um, you know, we're only looking for software. So if you have a hardware component, uh, it would not be a fit either. But if you are a potential fit, then we have a link to, an, I think it's an Airtable. Um, so you can go to Justin Gordon's Twitter or my Twitter or our website and find that link to um, get in touch with us. Yeah, we'll make sure to, to link to it as well. Um, what do you think is like next? Like, you, you, we've seen so much change. You mentioned in terms of capital and especially in the early stage markets. Um, you guys are about to launch an innovative uh, angel group. Like anything that you that's exciting to you as an investor in terms of the way you think companies are going to be funded moving moving forward. I can share my hypothesis on the trends that I think are coming eventually. Sure. That's interesting. Yeah. Hypothesis is always good. Yeah. 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 So I think that um, moving forward, we're going to see a lot of the big, bigger firms coming down at the seed. So you just saw that Andreessen and launched a, I think, $400 million seed fund. They're not going to be the only ones. So we're going to see more of it because when you have Tiger and other large hedge funds that are encroaching on Series C, Series B, I was just on a, uh, listened to a panel and learned that uh, Tiger is now one of the biggest Series A investors. They're all coming yeah. downstream. So, so what does that mean? Founders are going to have to decide between a multi-stage firm. So this is like an Andreessen who's investing all across the stack um, versus a, a pure play seed stage fund like us. And what, what's the difference? Obviously, the multi-stage firm has a lot more money and resources um, but I think that where the seed stage firm can and will win in the future is in a couple of areas. So one is um, one is brand. And I think it's the firm brand. I think it's the GP brand. I think founders really want to like the person that they work with. 
Um, and so I, I see that the, the best early stage firms are investing in this area. And that's what, you know, we hired a director of marketing content community back in January. We want to stay ahead of this trend. I think the other thing that I've already mentioned is diversity. Uh, mm-hmm. Founders want diverse teams. They want diverse investors. So um, the funds who really embrace that as part of their model, I think are going to be in a great position. And then the, the last piece is around tech enablement and data science. Um, I think that early stage VC is all about process. And for us to compete against those multi-stage funds, we have to get really smart about how we leverage data internally to both source deals and to help our companies, as well as to enable um, our processes via technology to make it as easy as possible for our founders. Love it. Uh, Gail, I can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, thanks again for uh, one, sharing your story, uh, jumping on and, and ch- talking to us today, and then all the resources you've created. Um, we'll make sure to, again, to link to everything uh, we talked about today. Um, and so we'll make sure to link to the, the Android group launch, uh, the resources launch. I think that's amazing to help founders um, help build lists. So we'll link to all of that. Um, but Gail, thanks so much for coming on and we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Happy to, awesome. happy to join. Yeah. Thanks, everyone.